I am fascinated with this story and I want to I want to cross-examine another witness in this story. I want to talk to Mark. Mark, I'm really curious about this cleaning up Bill's messes. Give us, give us the gracious story first and then we'll go for the dirt. Well, everything you said is true. I'll go ahead and put that on the record. Um, I was a, I was a, I've been a pastor over 30 years. The first 15 years I was a pastor, I didn't make one disciple. The problem was our mission statement at the church was making disciples of Jesus for the transformation of the world. That was the mission statement. That was the mission statement. I love uh, that. Yeah, it sounds great. Great words, uh, yeah. Yeah, but when you pop the hood, there was no engine. I mean, one of the things that's been surprising, shocking to us is how many churches and ministry activities find discipleship to be so disruptive that they consider it problematic. Was that really the kind of thing that happened with you at the church? They were offended because they felt that their individual Islander ministry was discipleship. And the problem with that is it is discipleship, but it's incomplete. So this guy in the red, the guy from the, in the red sweater shows up in my office one day and he says, man, I'm really pumped that you're the discipleship pastor. What's your plan? And I said, well, my plan is to, uh, we've got Sunday school classes. We have 22 different Sunday school classes. We have 12 different mission trips. We have walk to Emmaus, men's retreats. I just went down the menu of all the things the church does in the program. And then I patted myself on the back and that's great. And he looked at me, um, like he's looking at you now. And he said, he said, uh, wow, that's not a plan. It's not going to work. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Disciple Dilemma. I'm Dennis Allen. Discipleship. Don't pastors already know how to do that? We're going to have a really frank conversation today with the guys at Narrow Gate. Bill Lonis, who founded it, and Mark Danzi, who's a pastor, working with him to do it. This is not a criticism of pastors, not a criticism of the church, but boy, does it have some frank talk. I hope you'll listen to us. Raymond and I are having a fascinating time with this conversation, and it's just pretty much up in your face. Here we go. Bill and Mark, we're grateful that you guys with Narrowgate EFL would join us on the Disciple Dilemma Day. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. Our pleasure. Yeah, I was really interested. I look back on your website, and today in evangelism, we think that it's really pretty easy to get people to become a Christian. They just need to make a decision to follow Christ. And yet you call this ministry activity the narrow gate and talk about discipleship as being more than just conversion. How did you get started? Why are you doing this program called Narrow Gate? Well, when, when I was 48 years old, I was coerced through a dessert to listen to a man speak at a home in a family not far away, who I thought was one of the most boring men I'd ever met. And uh, <laughs> starting and, out really good. <laughs> yeah, it started out real good. It was rather boring. But I met these guys there at the dessert afterwards. And I said, they got the same problems I have, but they sure approach them differently. So I started meeting one-on-one -on -one with this man. His name is Dr. John Musselman, and his ministry is called the Jackson Institute. And he met with me twice a week and once a week. And uh, in about a two-year period of time, he convinced me that I had to make three decisions. 
And the first decision was Jesus is who he says he is, right? And he's my savior. The second decision was not only is my savior, but he's to be Lord of my life. And that meant that I was going to go him to him more and more often in all areas of my life uh, to be led by him and what his book says, the Bible. And the third thing was, is that I was going to disciple men for the rest of my life. That was the three decisions. And so one night I just bowed my head and in this basement of this house and made those three decisions, ran out to the car, made them out loud to God and said, look, I hope you're here in the second time. And then went home and told my wife. <laughs> and that's kind of how it got started. And then a couple of years passed by, some things happened where I got too involved in doing things in the church. And I went back to him. I said, look, I need to be discipled. So he started discipling me. And that was in about 2002. So I was 48 years old, became a Christian when I was 51, and then started discipling in 2004 there after he had trained me for two years. And I just started discipling guys at the local church. And, you know, just Saturday mornings, we showed up and with five other guys, and I led them through a three-year curriculum, and it started growing from there. In 2006, we had 28 guys, and, uh, and it was just rolling right along, and I realized there wasn't really a resource. So Narrowgate began 15 years ago as just a dumping ground for all my stuff. Right. Because I have I'm surrounded by 150 books I've read now on disciple making. Uh, it, I am reading two today and my bopping around between appointments. And I'm just, you know, enamored by the life of Jesus and how it's as applicable today. Well, I will let Mark tell you the red uh, the red sweater uh, story. <laughs> but what happened was, is, is that literally the pastor of the church asked me to leave the church, myself and two other guys, because he really wasn't quite for this and what he had heard about it. And so we just went off campus. So I haven't had a group in the church for ever since then. I mean, one of the things that's been surprising, shocking to us is how many churches and ministry activities find discipleship to be so disruptive that they consider it problematic. Was that really the kind of thing that happened with you at the church? I have been asked to leave the church. I've been called about everything. Mark one time said that he wanted, he was tired of cleaning up all my messes uh, <laughs> because, you know, they were offended because they felt that their individual islander ministry was discipleship. And wow. the problem with that is it is discipleship, but it's incomplete, right? If I'm running a mission trip here or a Sunday school here or whatever, or the choir or service, there's an element of disciple making there, but it's not holistic. So the disciple making that we propose is it's holistic in nature, the whole of a person's life submitted to follow Jesus, and one of his commands is to replicate. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of how we look at it. So people were offended very much so. So, Bill, you're saying that people viewed your actions as a hostile takeover of turf. Yes. Yeah, they really did. They saw well, me as a threat. What were you doing that was just so cruel? I mean, just tell us everything. There's nobody listening. 
<laughs> I, I'm a, a rather determined guy. Uh, and when I, when I get my mind set on something, so I kind of stay the course. I was not growing. My wife and I are sitting in pews and go, man, we love this church. We like people. We're never supposed to be a member, but I'm no better three years or four years from when I became a Christian than I am now. I'm still doing the same dumb stuff, wondering how you're supposed to, what I'm supposed to do, right? What I'm supposed to do to be a better person. And so I went back to my mentor and said, teach me disciple making. He taught me a whole different way of being a follower of Jesus, the full meaning of surrender and submission. So, so give, me, give me some specificity in terms of what you mean by following Jesus. If you look at it holistically, we're, we have four calls as a Christian, right? The first call is the call to salvation. I'm called to salvation. Second call is the Lordship. Lordship is actively interacting in a relationship with the Lord on a regular basis in order to hear from him how he wants to live my life and then being obedient to it. The third call is the call to be a disciple and make disciples. And the fourth call is to have a ministry of purpose on top of that. So my ministry of purpose or narrow gates ministry of purpose is we help pastors change the, the culture of their churches to disciple making. I am fascinated with this story and I want to, I want to cross examine another witness in this story. I want to talk to Mark. Mark, I'm really curious about this cleaning up Bill's messes Yes. Give us the gracious story first, and then we'll go for the dirt. Well, everything you said is true. I'll go ahead and put that on the record. Um, <laughs> I was, a, I was, I've been a pastor over thirty years. The first fifteen years I was a pastor, I didn't make one disciple. The problem was our mission statement at the church was making disciples of Jesus for the transformation of the world. That was the mission statement. That was the mission statement. I love uh, that. Yeah, it sounds great. Great words, yeah. Uh, yeah, but when you pop the hood, there was no engine. <laughs> so, I'm speaking of my life, okay? I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about me. So I had gone to Bible. I had become a believer October 22nd, 1989, 11 p.m., third floor of Athens Regional Medical Center by myself and a Gideon's Bible. Um, I started going to a church. I felt the call to ministry. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary, and I did ministry in a full-time capacity for 15 years. And I had no idea how to make a disciple. So I'm at this large church in Metro Atlanta. And there's this uh, lady serving in our youth ministry. She's very committed, but I never saw her husband. And since I'm a judgmental person, I thought, well, he's probably one of these slackers who just, you know, the wife goes to church and the husband doesn't. <laughs> she was always serving. I never saw him. So I hold this little volunteer thing, and this guy shows up in a red sweater. I don't know why I remember the red sweater, but it was Bill, and it was her husband. And I'm thinking, you know, man, I, I really want to share the gospel with this guy because I never see him around in the things that I see her around in. It was a large church, and so he was doing things. I just We didn't cross paths. Um, and so he came to my office one day. Um, I had been every position in the church at this point. I'd served four large churches. I'd served six senior pastors 
Not one of them ever discipled me. Um, I had no been not I had not been discipled in Bible college. I had not been discipled in seminary, and I had not been discipled in the church. Okay, folks, you're hearing live right now a story that is so very consistent with so many of the guys that we've talked to here. I don't think this is unusual. Do you, Mark? No, because I talk to the pastors now who were in my shoes as well. And so it hurts me to say I was. A... Now, God did some things around my ministry. People still went in the ministry, but I didn't have a plan. I didn't know how it happened other than just do some spiritual things and maybe Jesus shows up, you know. <laughs> so. So this guy in the red, the guy from the in the red sweater shows up in my office one day and he says, Man, I'm really pumped that you're the discipleship pastor. What's your plan? And I said, Well, my plan is to uh we've got Sunday school classes, we have 22 different Sunday school classes, we have 12 different mission trips, we have walk to Emmaus, men's retreats. I just went down the menu of all the things the church does in his program. And then I patted myself on the back. And that's great. And he looked at me, um, like he's looking at you now. And he said, he said, uh, wow, that's not a plan. It's not going to work. And I immediately was offended. I immediately thought, who is this Cracker Jack? You know, Winston Churchill said a bulldog's nose is slanted backwards so it can hold on to its victim and still breathe. That's <laughs> um, so I just said, well, that's my plan. And that's what we're going to do. And I just was kind of taken back by it. Uh, we did this again. Um, then he took me to play golf and then took me to lunch. And then we did this, I don't know, several times. And he would say, well, you got a plan yet? And I, I knew he was a financial planner. He was in the business world. He was successful. I, I, did, I just didn't understand why what I was telling him was continually met with that's not a plan because it's the only plan I'd ever seen. Um, so I eventually said, look, this dog and pony show is not working for me. Um, if you, I feel like you know something I don't know. If you want to share it with me, I'd be glad to listen, but I'm not going to do this anymore. You ask me to plan, I tell you, you say it's not a plan, and then we huff off until we meet again. Um, so he said, great, I thought you'd never ask. What night are you free? Which is a great question because it's really hard to squirm out of that one because everybody's free one night of the week, right? I told him Monday nights, and he said, great, we'll meet in your office. And then he, I said, okay, I'll get this guy off my back. I'll just say yes. Um, and then he came in the office with Dr. John Musselman, the man that had discipled him. See, Bill is, is a freak of nature. He is the guy who was led to Christ by a man who discipled him to maturity. That doesn't happen a lot. Not in the circles I ran in. Um, and so I sat there uh, with Dr. John and a couple other pastors and Bill. And it Dennis, it only took me two years to get it. Uh, <laughs> It felt like a Bible study, but it wasn't. It felt like a small group. It felt like a train. I wasn't sure what was happening here, but John slowly unfolded uh, for us what classic discipleship looked like in the manner of Jesus. And we literally just pretty much studied Jesus's life. And then I learned later that, you know, if you study discipleship, you don't always see Jesus. But if you study Jesus, you always see discipleship. And um, I got it. I mean, hook, line, and sinker after two years. I'm forever grateful to Bill for his tenacity. Actually, it was just, it was love. He, he loved me. He loved the Lord. And he just wasn't going to let go. So I thought, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. 
Uh, this idea that you gather four to six men, you invest in them over three years, and at the end of that process, they are fully equipped to make disciples. Um, so I did it, and I put a group together. And um, after three years, none of them disciple. Uh, <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I'm doing it wrong. I mean, we had a great time, but I, I, I did like everybody else. I think I kind of morphed it back into a Bible study because that's about all I knew. But then I tried another group and I did another group, another group. Now, after the last, what, 18 years, the Lord has, I've discipled dozens and dozens of men who are now discipling. And the fruit is there. I mean, it's evident. Um, so that's kind of how I got introduced to discipleship. And I like to say there's six reasons. And when I share this in conferences with pastors, and then I ask them, which of these six reasons do you resonate with? They go, all six. <laughs> the first one was, um, the reason I did not disciple as a pastor was I'd never seen it. I just had never, I'd never been invited to into a group because people think the pastors know everything. What can they learn from a lay person, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd never seen it. The second one was, um, it's just messy. It's hard. I mean, why would I invest in a church of, you know, 1200 folks on a Sunday morning why would I spend so much time with so few? I mean, I need to be an inch deep and a mile wide, you know, and, and I don't have time to do that. Plus, it looks like exclusionary. You know, I'm spending all this time with these few people. What about the others? You know, um, it's messy. It's hard. It's difficult. Um, it's misunderstood. Um, why did Jesus spend so much time with 12 when he had the mat? Why didn't he spend that much time with the 5,000? See? Mm. And so I just didn't understand it. Um, you know, another reason is it's just um, it's just pure disobedience. I, I was just living in disobedience and I didn't even know it. Uh, because the Great Commission is a commandment. We, we say the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. But if I read the Great Commission, it's not like an option. Hmm. There's no, it's not like, hey, guys, if you want to do this, you know, if you have time, maybe it's go as you were going in the better Greek. Um, so that's pretty much how, as a pastor, um, I came into, into disciple making. So is that really what you've experienced, that as you've discipled people, that's been able to network and expand your ministry so that it's more effective in the kingdom? Let's say a man raises his hand under conviction of the Holy Spirit, comes to the altar and says, I want to change life. I want, I want to be I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And the pastor prays for that individual. What happens next is more critical than what happened then. What's going to happen if this person becomes a brand new believer, what's going to happen to them? Sure. The pastor doesn't have the capacity to disciple every person that's going to come to the altar and accept Christ uh, over the next several years. So in my experience, what's been great is when a man would come to Christ I would scan the, the church and look for a man that I had discipled because I know he, he's a disciple maker. Go to him and say, let's just use you hypothetically. Raymond, I'm so glad you accepted Christ today. Dennis is there. And I say, and I know Dennis is uh, looking to disciple men and he's trained to do it. 
and say, Dennis, I want to introduce you to Raymond. Dennis, will you disciple Raymond? Dennis shakes his head. Yes, I got it. And I know he's got it because I trained him. Now, it's, not, it's impossible for me to disciple every man we lead to Christ, right? But if I disciple six, eight, 10, 12 men, think of the scores of men that can be discipled by those few guys that I invested in. Hmm. And so this is where I think, you know, folks who come to faith, if they're not discipled, um, they will go back into a worse place than they were before they accepted Christ. That's biblical. It's also statistical, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so I, I do think that the what seems to be an investment into a few lives is the only way to focus on multiplication versus addition. And for me, every pastor I talk to is focused on addition, and they have no idea. Well, I'm not going to say no idea, and they don't seem to put their same amount of efforts into multiplication. Yeah, that's so, Bill. I wanted to ask you this question about. Uh, Narrowgate, which is you experienced a change in your identity as Dr. Musselman began to help you see who you really were in Christ, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I I learned in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, what it means by being created in his image and his likeness, right? In his image is my identity. And I Every human being functions, their behavior is out of their identity. And I was a heathen, self-consumed for 50 years. And I functioned out of that identity. If you ask me who I am, right? I would have said, I'm a financial planner, I'm a golfer, I'm a bass fisherman, da 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 da, da. And then the likeness is the behavior. So what I was doing was, is I had our incorrect identity and therefore incorrect behavior. Church is not just one of my activities and an institution I belong to. It's my core identity. How did round one versus rounds two, three, four, five change in your mind as a discipler? Um, well, th there's three things we focus on imparting in the life of another, and that is knowledge, skill, and character. The path, as a pastor, I knew how to do the knowledge piece. I could impart knowledge, Bible studies, what the Greek says, da, 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 da. And it's really easy. So what happens is, is we tend to, if you're not careful and accountable, your discipleship group will, will just migrate to be in a Bible study. Okay. And that's a good thing. Uh, it's imparting knowledge. What I wasn't doing a very good job at, that was imparting skill. And what are the skills that a man or woman needs to know to be a mature multiplier? So I began to learn more skills and implement those skills and then hold the guys in my group uh, and my wife disciples women and she would do the same in her group with women is then hold them accountable for the skills that they were learning. And a lot of it honestly began to happen through role play in the group. And that was something that was missing in my first group. Now, I learned that in the secular world. Um, I'm an executive coach. I went through the International Coach Federation training, ICF, and I noticed they were like 30% content, 70% application of that content, skill development. Then I became a mediator. Uh, I went through mediation training with a bunch of lawyers and me. And I saw they were about 30% content and about 70% application of that content and skill development. That's what was missing. 
That's what was missing in my first group. So in my subsequent groups, we started teaching skills and I wanted to see those skills played out, developed, honed. And then a man in my group told me one day a light bulb went off in his, in his, uh, in his mind. And he said, you know what? I've learned discipleship is not a, an art or a science. It's a craft. Bill, do you guys take people out on field trips then, or is this just all role play inside the building? Oh, no. I mean, this is, you know, disciple making is, you know, I tried to be a hero at one time and had four or five groups at the same time. Uh, and but now I just have one group of disciples at a time. Six, oh. I have five guys and I need to hang around with those guys regularly. So whether it's playing around the golf, going to a movie with the spouses or, you know, my summertime is my favorite because I we take the summer off from groups and I get to see them one on one and get to understand what's going on in their lives. But no, this, uh, you know, when I tell a, a guy when I'm discipling, dude, you're not sitting here for three years. You got me for life. Right. I got you on speed dial. You got me on speed dial and we need to stay in touch and I'm around. And then I, and so I'm, as Mark told you, I'm a little ornery and I'll show up pretty regular uh, <laughs> and hang around these guys. And they know the four questions I'm going to ask them. Who have you helped to get a saving relationship to Jesus? How's the Lordship going in your life? Who are you discipling and how's your ministry going? The four same questions every time. And they know I'm asking them and they, and most of the time I don't have to ask. They just started. <laughs> yeah. Because that's just, we live, eat, and breathe that. Do you get to know these guys well enough to be able to see through their souls in this period of time and know when you're getting transparency versus opaque or slips or dodges? They're only going to go as deep and as transparent and vulnerable as the leader. And you have to do it gradually because they're not ready right away for all the messy, gory stuff. Uh, but that's how it has to function. So my question to you guys is, if if I say, let's go back to the time when Bill was still an acceptable citizen in his church. He hadn't been tossed, right? He, he hasn't been shoved out the door. For every 100 people in that church, at that point in time, as, as you're beginning to realize discipleship has this depth to it, how many, how many out of 100 have lived that kind of life, Bill? Well, statistics from Barna right now are less than 9 out of 10, or 9 out of 100. That's, it, that's the Barna statistics. And I think the issue with that is they were going to be disciples anyhow, despite the church. And yet the church puts them up on a pedestal and says, look what we do, right? This guy was going to do it anyhow. Our gal was going to do it anyhow. And, you know, because you, you, you can't program a follower of Jesus. Understanding I'm a saint who sometimes sins. That's my identity. And when I do, I know I'm forgiven. And I know I'm to repent. And I need God's grace to help me repent totally. Did Bill's content and repetition persuade you? Or was it the fact this guy loved you? What was the triggering catalyst for you personally in this thing going, wow, that's discipleship? 
Bill was Andrew for me. Come and see. And sitting at the feet of John Musselman for two years in his uh, very um, analytical uh, unfolding of Christ's way of discipling, I started to read the scriptures differently when I saw how Jesus interacted with 12. Hmm. I started to see that the miracles and the teachings were minimal and the interaction with the 12 was maximum. That for me was, like I said, it only took me two years uh, for the light bulb to go off. Um, that's what it was for me. Okay, so I want to ask this question for both of you. I don't care who answers it, but I'm really interested in you guys chasing this dog for a second. I'm going to be shameless in asking the question, how do I mass produce the, the awareness so the church begins a culture shift in discipleship? How do I get the scale of this sucker up instead of it taking Bill two years to get through to Mark? I, I don't have to, I need to microwave this pizza, guys. I, I need to microwave the pizza. So come on, give me the magic answer. What's the magic answer? Who are the three men I'm going to disciple? You have to have the courage to think small. Oh, I, I love it because one of the things that you said earlier, which Dennis and I've talked about, because Dennis is big on wingman because he's an old airman, and 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 I, I appreciate his service for the country, even though he went to the University of Alabama, and so we know that that's a black mark on his name forever. I gotta <laughs> but, get another <laughs> anyway. Um, but one of the things you said, Bill, is just really key to what we think, which is discipleship is not a program where I turn people over in three years. It's a three-year or two-year relationship where we get close to one another and grow together, but it's a lifelong relationship. It's a relationship of loving and working together to advance the kingdom of God. It's not just a one-time thing where I'm doing it and then you go do it with other people. It's not a pyramid scheme. It really is a community building activity. How do we create within a disciple making activity within the church, those disciples to come together into a genuine community that loves one another and accepts new people so that the attraction of the church is not just the gospel message, but it's the ability to become part of a community that cares about me. If you're a disciple, it's part of your life. It's natural. You hang around other disciples. All you're, you're looking around for other people. You're trying to invite them into the state dinner. I mean, it's like, it's the way you function. You don't have to make community. It happens. Okay, I got to throw a foul flag here because what if I'm an introvert, right? I mean, like I'm an introvert. Raymond's an extrovert, but come on, Bill. You can't just have me go out there in the world and start talking to people, right? I mean, surely God lets introverts like me just kind of hang around and wait for you guys to come in and stir up the water, right? Come on. Well, if you're going to catch measles, you got to hang out where measles are, right? So you go hang around other introverts. You are a good sport, and I love the way you're going with this, even though you knew I was kind of yanking your chain. Yeah. So we have a culture in Christianity of if I'm just not comfortable oh. being around people, that's okay, and I'll just sit in the corner. But you're actually putting the thesis forward, even if it's not your comfort zone, as a disciple, going out and inviting is part of your job description. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. It's a part of who you are. If your identity is in Christ as a child of God, you have a responsibility to fulfill that. So I want to ask you, too, the question then. Um, there's going to be some people watching this. They're going, um, I, I want in on this game. Uh, what can Narrowgate do for me? What do you want to tell us about 
what Narragate can do for me and how do we get in touch with you guys? So Narragate, the road forks for Narragate and the one fork in the road is the Commission Institute. And this is a two-year process where pastors and lay leader, church leaders come into um, a committed relationship, a process of training that is followed up by a third year of implementation. And during that time, they're, they're being discipled, they're learning all the skills, they're, they're rolling it out in their congregations or their churches. They're trying to change the culture uh, versus establish a program, which is a very different paradigm for a lot of pastors, how you change a culture. And this is uh, followed up by a third year of implementation where we walk with them. And then also they're all coached individually. I believe in coaching. And every pastor that goes through our institute gets a personal coach as a part of it to help them in their own personal life and ministry, but also to un as they roll this out, because it sounds easy until you roll it out <laughs> and mm -hmm. then you get pushed back. So the Commission Institute for pastors who are looking to be trained, that's that's one way in our website. There's a you can click on a learn next steps for pastors and fill out a little information and we can be in touch with you. The second way is called an apprentice of Jesus. And this is where everybody on our team is discipling men and women, not clergy, not ministers, not pastors. So we, we train uh, folks how to do that. We have uh, uh, tools. We, we don't call it curriculum. We call it a toolbox. Um, and then what we do is expose you to those tools and then teach you how to use those tools. Um, but we found that the greatest... Um, the greatest reproduction happens when a pastor of a church gets this because that pastor is over 200 people where an, uh, a lay person in the church, you know, they're in their community or they're coaching their kids little league team or whatever. And we just found that the sphere of influence is so much greater in the ministry leader. Um, I will say though, that it's uh, oftentimes harder for the ministry leader to really get this because they're so ingrained in what we've always done. Um, and so there was a study that just came out as, uh, that, that we saw that said that uh, looking at the number one stresses for pastors, and it said um, the answer for that, and I think this was a LifeWay study, 44 stressors for pastors, right? They boiled it down to a few antidotes. And the number one thing that most pastors said they needed, 77% training. They need training, hmm. not education, training. It's different. And that's what we are. We are a training organization that trains men and women how to be disciple makers. So our website's pretty clear. It's narrowgateefl.com. That stands for Equipping for Life. Um, and so if you go there, uh, you can just click on the Apprentice of Jesus or the Commission Institute, whichever camp you find yourself in. And then we can uh, meet with you, help you forward. Our goal is responsible, resilient reproducers. And so I was at a conference this week and I asked pastors, how would you like another 10 or 12 people in your church that are responsible for their faith, they're resilient, and they're reproducers? Would you like that? How, how many no's did you get? <laughs> yeah, that is that is what our outcome is. Uh, it's what our targeted outcome is. And so um, this, this is what we're offering. And for the pastor who is willing to commit the time to it, they're going to see fruit. They're going to see results. But this idea of I don't have enough time to do this, it's a real thing. You know, it's it's because we're they're spending a lot of their time on, on things that aren't going to reproduce. Let's just be honest. They're just going to keep the emails down, make people happy. And, and they're basically 
not really disciple makers. They're more like a chaplain. And chaplains are good. But ultimately, Jesus did not call us to go make churches. He told, called us to make disciples. And uh, so we went out and spent all our time making churches. Folks, you're seeing the website for Narragate EFL. And of course, you just heard Mark tell you how to get there for those of you who are on audio only and not seeing the video right now. And uh, I guess my last question for both of you would be, if I want to sign up, what's my time commitment? And uh, is, is this a freebie? How, how do you get into this thing? Well, um, we're pretty selective. Uh, obviously, we talk about the courage to, to, to think small. And so we are not a mass-produced ministry. Uh, we are not going to be uh, holding extremely large conferences. We'll speak at them. Um, but our, we are really focused on, on folks who are serious about this. One of the ways that we're doing it right now is uh, we're going to be launching some groups in January, and we've got a uh, series of workshops that we're going to do. They're webinars. They're free, uh, one in September, one in October, and one in November. They're on our website under the event tab. And this is where somebody could come on and just kick the tires, listen to us for an hour, listen to a pastor who's been through the Institute and get the testimony from them of what they experienced and how is it how, if any, how has it changed their ministry in their life? And so those webinars would be a good place for folks to land to see if Narragate's really a fit for them. And if I'm not anywhere near the Atlanta area, does this work? Or are you guys a face-to-face -face event? How does that work? Uh, well, we meet once a quarter face-to-face. -face, and it's going to be in the Atlanta airport area, somewhere between Macon and Atlanta airport. We have a facility at the airport uh, that was donated by a guy that Mark disciples. Uh, and, uh, and then we meet by Zoom the other two months. So it's four face-to-face -face a year. The meetings last for five hours from 10 to three, so they can come around it however they want to travel. And it's very intensive, and there's a lot of homework in between. So it's about, a, I think, about a 15-hour commitment a month. 10 hours of preparation and five hours of sessions uh, and long-term. Bill Onis, Mark Danzi with Neurogate EFL. Thank you for being with us on The Disciple Dilemma. Mm -hmm. Thank you, brother. Oh, thank, thanks to both of you. Good humored and really wise counsel. Thanks for your participation. You're very welcome. And Raymond, thanks for cleaning this up for me and making it really good. I'm grateful for you in my life. <laughs> You're a real blessing from God for me as well. <laughs> okay, I got that on tape. <laughs> Would you help the church think more about discipleship? Would you help us get the conversation started to talk about the biblical discipleship Jesus gave us? Please follow us. Our website, www.thediscipledilemma.com. You can find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and all the RSS feeds. If you'd follow or like us, you'll help us get leverage in the digital marketplace to talk about the fact that discipleship needs to be talked about. And as always, folks, thanks for listening.